Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 50 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. First of all, I, uh, I just have to remark that it's episode 50. Yay, yay, yay for us, right? Um, today I want to talk, uh, just have a, a, a smaller maybe episode, um, just me uh, thinking out loud with you. Um, and, and this one is about, uh, I call it the social dilemma and otherness. You know, I don't know if any of you watched uh, the Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. Uh, I watched it not too long ago, and uh, it was disturbing at it was as it was intended to be. Um, I won't pretend to be a movie reviewer. That's not my thing. But I thought it was very good, and I thought it brought a ton of points about social media um, in clearer view uh, for those of us who may have... Um, been aware of this, but not to the extent that it actually was true. But to put my reviewer hat on, though, I thought that the acting out of the personalized AI algorithms were it was a bit of a stretch, but it did break up the talking heads, which might have been boring for people after a while, although I personally like talking head documentaries. But the point of this uh, episode is is about the key theme of the documentary, and, and it's the way our minds are manipulated by social media platforms and the manipulation and how the manipulation was intentional by the big tech players or the companies uh, uh, and the money behind the big tech. The twist, though, is that the intentional manipulation was aimed at our attention to get us to buy things, but the super efficiency of the algorithms designed to do that was not anticipated. They didn't think it was going to be as good as it was, and the negative consequences on human thinking and behavior was also not intended. So it was sort of like creating a Frankenstein, and I think one of the one of the people who were reviewed on that, one of the tech players who were reviewed, actually said it was like creating a Frankenstein. The buying in, quote unquote, into distorted ideas about the world, ourselves, and each other that have become nearly ubiquitous since the pandemic, a la the rise of QAnon and the stand startling panoply of conspiracy theory, end times, great awakening groups that have grown to amazing proportions to the point of moving beyond their virtual groups and into the world to act out demonstrations, hate speech, and even violence. Now, the documentary features the narratives of several Silicon Valley defectors talking to the camera. These young executives, designers, and software engineers all left lucrative and influential positions for a variety of reasons around sort of this theme. Um, one of them's ethical concerns about addictive media. Others were political concerns over the polarization of society and the spread of fake news. 
or just general misgivings of the sort expressed by Tristan Harris, formerly a design ethicist at Google, who said in the movie, quote, when you look around, when you look, when you look around you, it feels like the world is going crazy. Is this normal or have we fallen under some spell, unquote. You know, after watching this documentary, I continued to reflect about how it really does feel like the world is going crazy. I also listened to many podcasts discussing these phenomena, um, the polarization, the, 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 the rise in conspiracy theory thinking, uh, end times beliefs, uh, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, great awakenings, uh, you know, all this stuff and how, how to address it, how to classify what it is and how to fix it. If we even knew what it was and is it even fixable? Some thought in this movie or documentary, when they interviewed them, some of the, uh, contributors thought that regulation could fix it. And some of the people who talked about this uh, documentary after on podcast, they talked all around, you know, what the what the problem is and how we were going to fix it, whether it would be regulation, um, sort of the way we used to regulate TV and radio programming. Yet it would require a new working administration and congressional action rather than what we have now, in, ineffective to say the least, um, executive branch and 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 a, and a congressional Congress that doesn't seem to know how to do anything except uh, push Supreme Court justices through. But here's the thing: first of all, social media isn't considered a, a media channel, so it it, it the nothing now is in place to regulate it. But some thought that big tech would eventually self-regulate more effectively as they awaken to sort of the Frankenstein they created. And I heard one voice on some podcast, and I don't remember the name of the person, nor do I remember the name of the podcast, but the thought, the voice stuck with me. This person said that the only solution would be a change in culture moving from a, a self-involved culture swallowed by social media and focused on the quote-unquote sins and hatred of the other to a culture that reached back out to people in the world with a rekindled awareness that the other is people too. And who is culture? A simple definition of culture from the dictionary is, quote, the way of life of groups of people, an integrated pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior, and the outlook, attitudes, values, morals, goals, and customs shared by a society. Now, the key word in that definition, in my mind, is shared. That's the issue today. We don't share with wide groups of people with different perspectives, different values, etc. We largely live in silos of belief and echo chambers, which has been made much worse by the pandemic and people 
uh, escaping into these echo chambers and silos of belief, um, running from, you know, running in fear from the uncertainty that the pandemic sort of hangs there around us with. So many of us have rarely interacted over the years with neighbors in any meaningful way, running from our work and errands back to our homes to jump on our computers and stick our faces in our phones. You know, in the excellent book, which I recommend, The Power of an Open Question, The Buddha's Path to Freedom by Elizabeth Mattis Namgel, um, she, she set out to help us understand what she considers is the Buddha's simple and central message. Quote, we access our greatest intelligence through engaging our life with the spirit of wonderment, not the seeking of absolute conclusions. And I will add, not seeking absolute conclusions about anything, people, places, things, the weather, how I feel, what I think, what you think. Mattis Namgel points out that the process of sitting with questions keeps your mind engaged yet open. She says the process of inquiry itself protects from the extremes of either ignorance or false certainty. And it seems to me that the feeling of this, that the world is going crazy, is that the world is living in the extremes of this ignorance and false certainty that she talks of. If we engage less with the world and people in front of us, instead we dive into the manufactured reality of social media where people become things, we are sure to live in that zone of ignorance and false certainty. Mattis Namgal calls this the, quote, activity of objectification, unquote. She says, quote, the more self expands to include others, the more kindness, compassion, and insight we experience. The more fixed we get about things, the more confusion, emotional disturbance, and conflict we experience. And she goes on to point out how when you're angry at someone, you always hold a very narrow and static view of them. She says, quote, attachment, jealousy, and aggression only function when we objectify things. That's why soldiers in combat are trained to hold static negative images of, quote unquote, the enemy. How can we kill someone when we see him face to face? when we know he was somebody's son, father, or brother? How can we have attachment when we see the dimensionality of an object, when it becomes more than just, quote, the thing we want? In fact, the whole purpose of advertising is to get people to want something through presenting only one side of things with no dimensionality at all, unquote. So there you have it. The whole purpose of advertising is to get us to want something, and I would add to not want something, or to hate something, or to push something or someone away, through presenting only one side of things. 
Now, this reminded me of a blog post I wrote some years ago, many years ago, called Even People You Don't Like Die. You know, that's kind of the nature of life. Everyone dies. But somehow, when we objectify other people, they become something unlike real people. They seem to defy all the laws of what life is all about. You can find uh, this whole blog post if you join the membership community Facebook group. Um, I mean, if you join the membership community of Everyday Buddhism and then in the in the membership uh, uh, community um, uh, area on my website, you will find a blog section where you can read my blogs and, and also Levi Shinyo Sensei's blogs. So anyway, about back to the blog. The blog was about a situation in my life where I had to work with someone who was extremely difficult to work with due to disorganization, passive aggressiveness, and occasional verbal abuse, and sometimes more than occasional verbal, verbal abuse, especially to those she considered below her. I had sometimes wished she would retire and go away, as others who worked with her did too. Then something happened. The person I refer to as DP in this blog had a major traumatic health event, and a couple of weeks after that, she passed away. It was a shock, as a sudden illness and death always is, propelling you into an instant awareness of your own mortality and the fragileness of life. DP's death for me was also a very humbling, dharma teachable moment. I wrote in the blog, quote, when DP suffered, she became a person again in my mind, and the mythical protagonist was no longer to be found just another sentient being suffering and dying. And in DP's dying, a bright Dharma light of wisdom shined on my own anger, my imperfection, my ignorance. I was no longer the good guy wronged by the evil DP. I was another human pausing to notice another's illness and death which is the future that awaits us all, even those difficult people. In creating my DP super anti-hero, I forgot I was chiseling a character out of my own thoughts and forgot that DP's behaviors are a result of causes and conditions and not coming from an fixed self or identity. In fact, DP is empty of an inherent existence, despite my creation of an innately mean super anti-hero with my own thoughts. The next time a difficult person makes your blood pressure skyrocket or causes you to bite so hard on your lip that it bleeds, you should remember this. Difficult people get sick and die, just like the rest of us. And that means you are no longer entitled to see them as bigger, worse, lesser, or different than anyone else, including yourself. They can no longer be your comic book-like anti-hero. 
You can no longer fix them as a symbol of inhuman evil. When a difficult person in your life dies, you finally have to accept them as a person just like yourself, just like the people you like or love. Unquote from my blog. Now, in the way of the Bodhisattva, Shante Deva teaches this with so much more literary grace in the following pertinent verses that I will share from chapter six on patience. Before I do, I just want to mention that the way of the Bodhisattva by Shante Deva is is a he has a wonderful way of seeing his own anger and ignorance and all that stuff that we all have, but looking at it from a perspective of the bodhisattva wish, from a perspective of emptiness and um, compassion that's founded on that emptiness. So in listening to these, I think we should keep in mind all others that we may be objectifying, especially right now, in this current climate of fear, divisiveness, polarization, and political, social, and racial unrest. I'll read the pertinent pertinent verses right now. Verse 1, pain, humiliation, insults, or rebukes, we don't want them, either for ourselves or those we love. But for those we do not like, it's quite the opposite. Verse 22. I'm not angry with my bile and other humors, fertile source of pain and suffering. So why should I resent my fellow creatures, victims too of like conditions? Verse 24. Never thinking, quote, now I will be angry, unquote, people are impulsively caught up in anger. Irritation likewise comes, though never plans to be experienced. Verse 25, every injury whatever, the whole variety of evil deeds is brought about by circumstances. None is independent, none autonomous. 33, thus when enemies or friends are seen to act improperly, be calm and call to mind that everything arises from conditions. Verse 34, if things occurred to living beings following their own wishes and intentions, how could sorrow ever come to them? For there is no one who desires to suffer. Verse 40, and if their faults are fleeting and contingent, if living beings are by nature wholesome, it's likewise senseless to resent them as well as being angry at the sky for having clouds. Verse 41. Although indeed it is the stick that hurts me, I am angry at the one who wields it, striking me. But he is driven and impelled by anger, so it is his wrath I should resent. Verse 53. Scorn and hostile words and comments that I do not like to hear My body is not harmed by them. What reason do you have, O mind, for your resentment? Verse 107. 
so like a treasure found at home, enriching me without fatigue. All enemies are helpers in my bodhisattva work, and therefore they should be a joy to me. And verse 111, because of those whose minds are full of anger, I engender patience in myself. They are thus the cause of patience, fit for veneration, like the doctrine. In those verses, I hope they give you pause and help you consider that no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, no matter what side of of, of vaccinations and masking and all the things that uh, are going on in today's world and today's crazy, crazy um, pandemic-laden, economically challenged, politically uh, upheaval-type world, despite all of that, we're still people. We're all still people. And something I always remember from these words from Master Shanti Deva, all things being equal, my enemy. If I, when I look at my enemy, and you know, enemy is a strong word, and I know that bothers some people, and I don't mean it in the way of like enemy, but there are always people that drive us nuts, or people that are on the other side of the political spectrum, or whatever. Um, we may think of them as our enemy. We objectify them, like. I was talking about from my blog. But if we look at these people and if we ask ourselves, if we were born into the same family with the same environmental conditioning, with the same natural genetic propensities, with the same everything that that person was raised with, we would likely be the same person as that person. So that's it for this episode, but don't forget, I'm looking for input from Everyday Buddhism podcast listeners. I've received a few emails, but would love to hear from more of you about how you are coping during these challenging times. Where have you found support? What are some of the resilience building practices or activities you have incorporated in your lives that have helped you walk through the troubled times we're living in? Please email your insights or comments to wendyshinyo at everyday-buddhism.com. That's W-E-N-D-Y-S-H-I-N-Y-O, all strung together, lowercase, at everyday-buddhism.com. Please email these with your subject line, How I'm Coping, and I will reach out to schedule a time to talk with you, possibly, Um, and then possibly schedule a podcast interview with you and a couple of other listeners. I already have uh, the potential of two uh, podcast listeners uh, getting on a show. They probably won't be in the same, um, uh, the same episode. So, um, you know, this will take some time. So if I don't get right back to you, don't worry. I will get back to you eventually. But please, uh, if you have something to say, please send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. So again, that's it for this episode. And as a reminder, don't forget that there are many ways to join me and others in either the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets every other week 
on Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time via Zoom, or our free public open sangha, which will now be held every month on Wednesday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time U.S., um, uh, also via Zoom with Levi Shinyo Sensei. Until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better.